Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Two Moms No Fluff. Today, I am very, very happy to welcome all of our regular listeners and to thank them for joining us yet again and welcoming everybody that is new and it's their first time here. My partner, Alma, is not here today. However, I am very, very excited to uh, welcome and introduce our guest today, which is another fellow mom and a good friend of mine, Megan Bates. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that um, uh, everybody here would enjoy spending time with you as much as I do every time we meet. And uh, I'll allow you to introduce yourself now, please. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so honored to be on this podcast that I've been following. And it's just such a great support um, for all of us who are in this parenting basket of <laughs> working with our kids with diabetes, I mean, with disabilities. And uh, yes, I have a daughter with type 1 diabetes. So we will specifically be talking about type 1 diabetes today. And um, that was formerly known as juvenile diabetes. So she was diagnosed when she was two. And we have been learning and going with the flow ever since then. She's now seven. Awesome. So uh, I, I uh, would ask you, if you don't mind, explaining a little bit to our audience and uh, to those who are parents of children with disabilities but have different disabilities, and for our allies of the disability community, what is type 1 diabetes for all of us that are strangers to it? Uh, and yes. maybe you can tell us and educate us a bit. Yes, I would be happy to. I think that I speak for most of us in the diabetes community that this is a very big point of contention we all strongly feel that diabetes needs a whole new name. The whole disease needs a whole new name because um, even the clinical name diabetes mellitus encompasses about seven different types of diabetes that are possible. Um, diabetes just in general means that uh, your blood glucose has become high and there can be many factors that cause that to happen. The most common type of diabetes is type 2 diabetes. So people will throw around the word diabetes and people assume that's what you mean. This is not type 2, this is type 1, which means that it is an autoimmune disease. So the trigger for having high blood sugar is different. What it means is that um, the body learned to attack the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. And insulin is what regulates your blood sugar. So as that happens, the body is unable to create insulin and your blood sugars go up and up and up um, and usually around the time of diagnosis is when this is discovered and at that point it's usually in a very dangerous territory which is called DKA which is um, diabetic ketoacidosis where the blood has become almost syrupy and you are no longer getting blood to the extremities to um, organs and can be deadly so usually it's an emergency hospitalization that gets you the diagnosis um, and after that there you will be on insulin you are insulin dependent for the rest of your life there is no cure 
for type 1 diabetes, um, despite what someone may tell you about cinnamon or turmeric or <laughs> any of these other things that can be good for your body, but they will not cure diabetes. Um, there are a number of sort of big research projects about cures, and I think, uh, I don't know if we'll get time to talk a lot about those things, but I think that um, as a uh, someone who lives with it every day, I find it something that I stay away from <laughs> because I, it's too painful for me to get, you know, my hope up about all these things. And I think early on that was very much happening. A lot of the doctors, they really want to make you feel better and you're so sad and they say, oh, but a cure is around the corner and I know XYZ is working on this. And you're like, oh, Googling frantically, when will it happen? And, you know, here we are. <laughs> uh, and, and in fact, a lot of the cures that um, have recently been talked about, I call cures in quotes because it's kind of trading one thing for another, which means maybe a pan pancreas transplant or a stem cell transplant, and then you're on uh, immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life, which for me is not a cure. And I know everyone feels differently, but that is what in a nutshell, diabetes is. <laughs> wow, thank you. That was actually an education also for me. And uh, because I know you and your family a bit, I, I know <laughs> some things about type one, but still it was uh, really educational. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Megan, if you don't mind, uh, can you maybe share with the, the audience, how did you learn that your daughter has a type one and uh, what, what was that uh, kind of process of discovery for, for you personally and for your family as a whole? Yes, yes, um, I'd be happy to. So she was, like I said, she was two, she had just turned two. Um, she was beginning to get a little skinny and very thirsty. And um, because I'm a stay-at-home mom, I think I noticed that she was drinking more than usual and I noticed that she was urinating a lot more than usual um, and was having some very, very cranky episodes that were out of her normal behavior, um, extreme, extreme meltdowns. So I took her to the pediatrician and this is a very typical story. Um, the pediatrician said, ah, she probably has a UTI. Well you know, let's, let's try to get a urine sample. She wouldn't pee there. I mean, she was two. Um, so I took the stuff home and I said, oh, fine, we'll gather it when we can. And um, it wasn't until the next day that I got the sample and took it back in thinking, oh, we're gonna be in and out. She took it into the, the doctor took it into the back and came out and told me, step into the office. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> she said, I need you to drive to the emergency room right now. And we got to the emergency room and they were still very, they wouldn't tell us what it was, you know, it was, it was like kind of this long, it took actually uh, 24 hours for them to actually tell us what was happening. But um, she was not in DKA, which I mentioned before. She was just before that. Her blood glucose was around 500. And for reference, an average person is 83. Um, so she was having things like blue lips. Her lips were turning blue because they weren't getting any oxygen. The things were um, suffering. Her extremities were turning blue and cold. And um, I remember being there and they finally came and said, oh, it's you know, type one diabetes. And I had kind of known tangentially a few people throughout my life who had seen injecting insulin. In fact, my best friend's dad in high school had diabetes and he kept it very private, but I knew he had it. So the nurse was, you know, 
drawing up the first injections to teach me. My hands are shaking. I was in a horrible state of mind. And I said, so how long do we have to do this for? And she said, oh, honey, forever, for the rest of her life. And I just, it was, it was, uh, you know, this, this is different for everyone, but I think a lot of people that I've spoken to that, that those moments in the hospital, when it, it becomes real are so just heartbreaking and painful um, for the parent. And uh, interestingly, I have a, a friend whose daughter was just recently diagnosed and she's 11. And they, I was teaching them how to do some things here at my house and the mom went to the bathroom and the daughter said to me, were you very upset when your daughter was diagnosed? I said, yes, I was very upset. It was very hard. She said, my mom is very upset, but I'm not, which I thought was so nice. Um, so, but for us, yeah, it was, it was extremely difficult. And I think it depends really a lot on your child and age of the child when they're diagnosed. If, if it was in the family already and you kind of know stuff about it, it might be different for you. Um, so that was, it's a very, very, very steep learning curve. Um, it's a lot of things to learn in a short amount of time. You're in the hospital usually for two days, maybe longer if they were in severe condition. And um, just a second, being on 500 in terms of the glucose level versus like the 83 that is normal is not <laughs> severe enough. It can, it, that's it can be worse. Yeah. yeah, it can be worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when it's worse, usually they're in a coma. Wow. And I would like to share with everyone, because this is my big PSA that I'm always posting online, is that people should know the signs of type 1 diabetes and that it doesn't happen in families that have a history of it all the time. We have no history. Mm -hmm. The signs would be very similar to a flu. So vomiting, um, extreme thirst, uh, dizziness, um, shakiness, blurred vision. And so a lot of people think, oh, they've got the stomach bug. and um, it's very important for everyone to advocate at their pediatrician to please, please carry a finger stick, a finger poker instead of the urine analysis because it's often very hard to get urine at that moment. I should not have gone home and waited 24 hours to take that in. That could have made the difference between life and death. Wow. Um, if I had not caught it until she was in a coma, she could have had permanent brain damage and, you know, that stuff happens or she could have died. Um, yes. So uh, you, learn, you learn a lot in these short days. And I, as much as I love the hospital staff and I think they're so, so well-meaning and working so hard, there is um, very widespread lack of knowledge about diabetes and we were miseducated about a number of things. And in fact, I left the hospital not even knowing that the insulin, which she has to take uh, if 10 injections a day of insulin, wow. um, could kill her. I didn't know that. So I didn't understand some very, very basic things about safety. Um, so the general sort of analogy for type one diabetes is walking a tightrope of blood sugars with death or brain damage on either side, because you can die very, very quickly from low blood sugar, which comes from giving too much insulin. Um, that will cause extreme seizures and break the neck and the back. Um, or you can die from the high blood sugar, as I mentioned. So you're trying to give insulin in a way that mocks what the 
um, that mimics what the body would do, which is extremely fine-tuned, and you'll never get it quite that way, but you know, what we do is every single thing she eats, we need to know an idea of how many carbohydrates that is. And that's not just sugar like, you know, sugar in your coffee. It's the starches and the things that break down into sugar. Even protein turns into sugar later. So it's very complicated. And the, the beginning is very, very hard to wrap your head around all of that while you're in extreme um, stress. Yeah. I, I just want to kind of... Uh wait a minute and talk about this point because many times there is a, a new diagnosis and nothing would happen in the time that it takes the parents to wrap their mind around this new reality but uh, you are describing a type of a disability that the moment the parents are in the know they have to act and act immediately and change a whole lifestyle and become suddenly healthcare professionals, which they weren't before in their parenting uh, lifestyle or skill level. And this sounds to me so frightening and overwhelming. Um, do you have any recommendations both to uh, healthcare professionals dealing with families uh, after a new uh, type one diabetes uh, diagnosis? and also for, for families on the very beginning of this journey? Yeah, I do. I have a number of thoughts around that. Some are practical and some are just more emotional. I think it's so important to find a support group. Um, and that is something I'm thankful that our hospital did recommend, which is there are a lot of Facebook groups. Um, for young kids, I recommend um, diapers and diabetes. And then for all parents, I would say, um, T1 Mod Squad, those are two names if you need to look something up immediately. It's very important to get on those because you can get emotional support and practical advice from people. Um, if if uh, you don't mind, just a second, for all our listeners, we would have uh, those two groups uh, mentioned in the description of the episode. So if you haven't seen that, please uh, scroll down in the episode description and you'll have the link to those two places. Sorry, go on. Great. Yes, that's wonderful. Um, so the emotional support piece is very important. Um, I think uh, practically, like I said, there are practical things that hospitals could do and parents can do. One thing that was very traumatic for us in the hospital and going home is that the, um, the finger pokers, because you have to test blood sugar through getting um, a drop of blood from the fingers, um, are very large for small children. They're not pediatric size that they stock in the pediatric ward. <laughs> and I really think that that would make a huge difference because my daughter was so much more traumatized by the finger pokes than the injections. Um, it's such a sensitive part of your body and their fingers are so tiny and the lancet was so big that I could just see the slashes all over her fingers. She would wake up when they come in the night to check it, just screaming for me to help her. And it was so traumatic for both of us. And not until later when I got home and I researched it, did I find out that they sell um, different types of lancets. One, for instance, is called Tiny Boy. There are various ones for pediatrics, for very small fingers, with the tiniest, tiniest, like the very, very tip of a needle because their skin is so thin and you really don't need that much. And you learn how to squeeze so that you get the blood out with the minimum amount of injury. Um, because her fingers were bruised and bleed all over. That was 
you know, it might seem like something small maybe to doctors and nurses because they're thinking, well, we're saving their life. And I'm so thankful for that. But it really, it, it really made um, life very hard in the beginning. And it took my daughter a month of horrible nightmares, screaming herself to bed for two hours every night after we got out of the hospital because she was so traumatized by that type of stuff. I think the hospital staff, um, my personal experience was that the doctors were very cold. And um, I remember one point, uh, my husband saying to one of the doctors, is there anything that someone can prescribe to my wife because she's so upset that it, we're having a hard time taking this information and we want to focus, but it, we're so upset. And he looked at me and he goes, why are you upset? Aye. And I just, I, I was so angry at that moment. I think there was a real lack of compassion, at least where we were, and I know it's different. And now I have an endocrinologist who's wonderful and so compassionate. So that kind of links into the idea that you need to find your doctors <laughs> and do not subject yourself and your child to people who are mean about it and who don't make you feel like you can ask every question because this is a life on the line and it's a quality of life that if you mishandle diabetes, you will have very poor outcomes down the line. Um, and which is a sort of one of the extra stresses. But yes, I think those are some small practical details for beginners um, to just try to find as much comfort as you can in these type of modifications to the equipment, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to kind of focus on the healthcare professionals, what would be your your message to someone who's uh, listening? If if they do interact with the uh, family, whether it's in a hospital, pediatric uh, office of uh, one sort or of another or another, what can they know or learn about families after new diagnosis that uh, can help them improve? Yeah, um, I think it's important to stay educated on the newest technology, um, that things are changing and to be able to offer people all of that. Um, I think it's important, the emotional piece, and I think it's very important that they check in with the parents and say, how are you doing? Because um, we operate with very little sleep. We have to wake up many times in the night, especially if we don't have all of the um, equipment, the glucose monitors to do finger sticks and just um, out of anxiety and to give sugar, we have to give sugar or give insulin and you're up a lot. Or if you have the glucose monitor, you're waking up with alarms and it's, at one point my endocrinologist said, I'm not worried about her, I'm worried about you. And that was the moment that I decided, oh, you're right, I am not doing okay. I am keeping her in great health, you know, at the cost of my own. And that was when I decided to go on Lexapro, which I think is something that people might think because diabetes is this uh, unseen disability and people kind of brush it aside and lump it in with type two, like what's the big deal? That they're thinking, oh, what's wrong with me? Why am I so stressed about this? I don't, I don't need help. I don't, you know, um, I, that made a big difference in just smoothing things out, talking to um, a mental health professional very helpful and there are um, doctors could maybe recommend there are therapists who specifically work with type 1 diabetes parents of type 1 diabetes and people with type 1 um, to understand the real ins and outs of the daily life um, and i think that um, professionals 
could be help, more helpful in terms of directing people to this type of um, group support, whether it's the Facebook groups or uh, there's the JDRF, Junior Diabetes Research Fund, they do sort of group activities and things because um, it's lonely, you know, it's, it's very lonely for the parents and the kids and the community is so important. Um, I want to ask you about um, about family members, like uh, your immediate family, your extended family. How was the influence of a new diagnosis and a new kind of life with diabetes? Like, what was the effect on your family circle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, everyone was, you know, very shocked and upset. Um, and I think that people want to be helpful. But I noticed that there's a, um, I guess I'll say it's a sort of an inability to come over their fear of doing these things that are painful to a child, which of course I understand. So we didn't get help in terms of someone else coming to do the injections this time. Even one time a day, I would have just like, just loved to not have to inject my child. Um, no one has learned to do that stuff and I, um, I think it's very hard. It's, it's hard uh, at this point for us to trust someone else to do it the right way. Um, you really have to know your stuff. So, you know, like there's a story that I know of a uh, two parents, they went out finally on a date after the diagnosis and were so excited and called the grandma and said, did you give the insulin for the dinner? They had left everything written out and she said, yes, I did. I gave her five units and they said, wait, what? I gave her five units of insulin and now she's eating. It had supposed to have been 0.5 units. Oh no. And she gave five units. That's the difference between life or death. So they had to turn it around, give the emergency medicine. Like, I mean, so it, it's, it's hard. And I, I understand the fear there. Um, and so for us, I think the extended family was there in terms of emotional support, but it's just very hard to understand, um, as with many, as you guys have talked so clearly and so well about it, just the depth of what the life is like on the day-to-day -day and how you need help, um, how hard it is to do some of the basic things and how exhausted you are. Um, so my family, you know, have been good with that, like maybe go take a nap, you know, or, or that kind of stuff, uh, which is so great. So uh, a more specific question, uh, as you know, we, we talk a lot about siblings in, in our yes. podcast, uh, a take about the experience of a sibling, like how, how was that in your family? How was the change with regards to the sibling? <laughs> yeah, um, well, he's a wonderful sibling. Um, he's so supportive of her and you know, it was very, I can testify to that yes. <laughs> the most amazing child, but maybe, uh, Megan for in the benefit of our listeners, uh, if you can describe the age difference and a yes. little bit about which is the sibling we're talking about. Yes. So, um, my daughter has an older brother. He is, um, about three years older than her and he's, uh, very kind and sweet. And so he was, he was with me when we went to the ER and I remember, um, so at the time he was five, he just plastered himself to the wall and I had no way of comforting him or reaching out because I was literally wrestling my daughter down so they could do the IV and just, you know, really in triage mode. So he was traumatized by that. 
Um, and then I think later where the ongoing work is with siblings is around the food stuff mostly, which, um, you know, Alma has talked about that and I, I resonate with a lot of that. It's the fact of the matter is that she cannot eat in the same way that other kids do. And I know every family handles this differently, but um, she needs to have insulin a certain number of minutes before she eats. And so it will mean like, you know, if they're clamoring, I'm hungry now, it's like, well, we're waiting 20 minutes now because we have to get her blood sugar down. And that's just the responsible thing to do. So there's, you know, a lot of accommodating that he does in terms of that kind of stuff or not having certain foods in the house um, or the ice cream trucks by drives by the playground and every all the kids go and it's sort of like he knows not to and it, it's um it is one of the hardships of this disease sort of navigating that and figuring out if you're doing the right thing and what's harmful and what's not in terms of setting these limits um because it's also harmful for my daughter to see oh he's going to go get ice cream and i can't or or that type of thing so it's a balancing act um but in terms of the care, um, he is now very helpful. He's now 10. So he, right now, in fact, they're with a friend so that I can do this without constantly checking my phone and everything. And I can call and say, okay, it's lunchtime. I need you to give her a certain amount of insulin. And that is because we have a pump, an insulin pump. And we have a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor. And these are two very, very essential pieces of equipment that um, have become much more helpful in recent years than they used to be. Um, but it means I can follow her blood sugars from afar on my phone. And um, even though it comes with its own pitfalls, it can be wrong. So you could be thinking that you're, everything's good and in fact she's close to a seizure. Those things mm -hmm. can happen. Um, but in general, the quality of life is much better and so siblings especially when it's an older sibling in this case can kind of step in and do something that a seven-year-old i wouldn't trust to do yeah wow yes and uh, i have to mention at this point in time because i do know your children that they're both amazing and um, it's just uh, an honor for our family that our kids are friends and uh, i am grateful for that there is so much to learn from both of them and how they deal with their life circumstances I want to ask you, Megan, about uh, the change in lifestyle in your family after the diagnosis, what it meant for you guys, both in terms of how you kind of handle life in general, and also maybe more specifically with regards to like the, the diet and how kind of that uh, changed after the diabetes diagnosis. Yes, um, I've always, I've always liked to cook. So, um, I quickly kind of learned new recipes. Um, we started following, we did more strictly in the beginning and less so now, we followed something called the Dr. Bernstein um, diet, which is a keto diet for diabetics specifically. He is a, um, a doctor with type one diabetes and he kind of developed this diet over his life, seeing that the results, you know, gave him better health. Um, Again, this is a very personal choice and also a very contentious one in the diabetes community. There's a lot of back and forth and most endocrinologists will say um, they're children first and diabetics second. And I personally disagree with that. Mm -hmm. I believe that part of her education is learning that no, you do have something, a lifelong illness, disease, that you need to 
modify some things around. Um, so for me, that means I'm not going to do the thing which is give the cupcake and let the kid have fun because if you talk to adult diabetics, they will tell you how you feel after having a cupcake. That it could be 24 hours of bad blood sugars. People call it getting on the roller coaster, going up and down. Um, and you feel like you're hungover, you know, and all this type of thing. And for me, the, the five minutes of enjoying the cupcake is not worth that payoff. And so I'm trying to replace some of those things with lower carb options so that she gets treats that she really likes and I make sure they're things she really likes. It's not, you know, yeah. so here's your kale, you know, your kale, although she loves kale chips. But so the upshot was that because she was so young when this happened and I changed her diet, again, not a lot. We weren't eating tons of junk food and all this stuff. But it meant like no more bread, which is big for a toddler, especially pasta, certain things. Um, she has an amazing palate. You know, when the, when the doctor asked her, what's your favorite food? She says kale chips. <laughs> or um, just loves like, you know, roasted sweet potatoes and fruit and um, all vegetables. And so it's, it's really shown me how kids' palates are developed because we very much cater to, oh, they're picky, we'll give them what they want, and it sort of creates a monster. But um, so that was, that was a big change, getting rid of a lot of, you know, favorite recipes and things that don't really make so much. But now I'm not strict keto, we're low-ish carb, I'll say. Um, she gets probably uh, 30 to 60 carbs a day. Um, just for comparison, give an I, example, yeah. What yeah. Yes. So for comparison, um, the endocrinologist, when we were first starting out with this, wanted her getting sixty carbs per meal uh, for a two-year-old. That really means like you know, white bread, peanut butter and jelly, you know, pizza, like all that kind of stuff. Um, so she's getting fewer carbs, and I have the carbs be more of like I said, sweet potatoes or something that has a lot of fiber, because fiber offs helps to smooth things out and they don't, her numbers don't jump up and down so quickly. So we've learned a lot in terms of that type of stuff. I think um, this is a good tip for parents um, who are new to this and doctors that you kind of get a sheet when you're in the office of this is each food and this is the carbs and you can just look it up and that's it, it's done. It's like simple math, right? And you get home and you realize, well, an avocado has 12 carbs, but nothing happens to her blood sugar. But you know, uh, slice of apple that supposedly has five carbs and it's like through the roof like what's going on here you very quickly realize that it all of the nutrients matter and so if there's fat or if there's it slows down and, and all these things so it becomes this kind of puzzle you begin to put together in your house in your kitchen to uh, figure out which foods are okay you know and less painful to deal with you know because it factors into everything in your whole day. You know, like if I'm dropping them off and my friends like I just did, I can't this morning give her something that's a little riskier and her numbers are crazy. And then maybe I have to give a lot of insulin and then leave her. And then the next time I turn around, they're crashing down. And this has happened to me twice. I just started sort of leaving her places where the mom is not picking up the phone. And I see that her numbers are going down very sharply and I'm extremely worried. And I get in my car and drive like a maniac over there and I'm banging on the door and you know, of course, it turns out the mom's like in the shower or whatever, like just living her life. But this is an example of our lives that there are these heart stopping, drop everything, you know, 
moments of rushing to give your child sugar and making sure they're not having a seizure. You know, I'm outside of the door thinking, I'm gonna call the police to break down the door. My kid could be in there right now, seizing with no help. So um, that's why I am the way that I am about food with her. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's definitely still a roller coaster, but maybe not as much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, the emotional roller coaster. It's maybe not yes. a blood sugar roller coaster, but linked to the emotional roller coaster that Definitely. goes with it. As you were describing all of this, Megan, I was thinking to myself how, you know, this new diagnosis forced you into becoming a scientist, experimenting with all of those numbers and foods and how it influences your child's health. And what I couldn't avoid concluding is I keep on asking myself, how come your 10-year-old is such a brilliant chemist? And what kind of a 10-year-old is even interested in chemistry? And now I understand he just does or deals with chemistry all day long at home. You guys are just like a, an open experimental lab. So uh, it's very interesting. Anyway, I, um, I, I think that... Uh, hearing you talk about all of this, first of all, I admire and salute you for the openness and for sharing all of this in, in such a beautiful way with all of us. But uh, I want to ask you about the resilient factor, like what made, made you resilient? Like what were the factors that helped you deal with all of this? this? Because it's a lot. Mm. Yes, yes. Um... Well, it's, it's an ongoing journey, I would say. Um, I think in the beginning, like I said, uh, therapy and, and being on medicine, which I'm no longer on, um, I feel more able, and that does happen, and I want to very much express that to people who are new to this boat. It feels like the pain will never end. And I remember a mom coming over, and you know, people kind of don't know what to say, and they're very well-meaning, and just her saying, well, you know, how are you? And I realized most of the time I answer, yeah, we're, we're okay. We're, we're doing okay. And I really was not okay. So at that moment I said, you know what? I feel like I say I'm okay. And it's this mask that I put on and underneath I'm a just howling in sorrow. So getting out of that stage became like my, you know, this goal that I had. I was like, I will try things that in the past I did not like. So I did yoga, which in the past I did not like. <laughs> and um, in fact, I, I believe that Alma and I go to some of the same yoga. It's yin yoga. And it was so calming to me. It was some of the first sort of windows that I had after diagnosis that, oh, maybe there is hope. People would tell me, oh, one day, you know, it will be more part of your daily life. It won't be so painful. And I was like, yeah, right no way you don't understand and all this stuff um and those were those moments of like taking that time which was hard for me to do uh to leave my daughter trust someone else to care for her um and go to yoga and take that moment for myself so taking some time for yourself is very important whatever that is and i do recommend some type of physical activity just because the effect on your cortisol levels is truly palpable um, it becomes kind of a life raft that you swim from one to the next to kind of get through those days. Um, and small things, just small things to 
do self-care, like putting some essential oil drops and taking the shower for an extra five minutes and steaming yourself or making sure that you're going to get your hair cuts and doing these things that, you know, make you feel still human, especially when you're very exhausted. And it can be hard to argue that with yourself. You'd be like, oh, just stay and watch a Netflix show or whatever, you know, just... Um, so I think, yes, the self-care was a big piece of me getting out of that. And then it was the knowledge, you know, that you mentioned that, you know, you have to be kind of like a scientist. Uh, you have to be educated. It helps so much to feel educated and like you can make decisions at home instead of being at the whim of waiting for the call back for the, from the on-call doctor when you're panicking and that type of stuff. Nothing should ever supplant your endocrinologist. That's always number one, but just that self-empowerment of knowing that I can also make some of these decisions and I understand what's happening and I know when to panic and when not to panic. Um, that was helpful. So uh, there are some good podcasts and books. Um, we can put some links, I'm assuming, to those too, but like um, the Juice Box podcast is a, is a good one, just sort of general knowledge, how to deal with stuff. Um, again, I mentioned the Dr. Bernstein book um, and there's Sugar Surfing is another one. So I think it's that journey, and again, it's a journey, and everyone kind of does it a little differently, but it, it is true uh, that you feel more grounded and more yourself one day after this. It took about a year, but yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I want to ask you if there's any advice that you have with regards to, like, uh, being a partner and dealing with, if you are uh, in a partnership situation, whether it's uh, with a, a spouse or another a partner, uh, how, how do you keep the balance with uh, two people reacting sometimes very differently to the new situation? Do you have any kind of relationship advice and uh, thoughts about uh, helping other parents with dealing with that uh, piece of the equation? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a whole other podcast that I think you and Alma have addressed some of those things on your partner podcast. Um, so I'll try not to cover all of those things. Um, it is very difficult and it is uh, should be understood by everybody that it will be a difficult year, at least, let's say, and, and to sort of give everybody in the home a little extra leeway during that time in terms of your reaction and um, hope that you receive that kindness back because it's it is going to be hard um, and everyone kind of goes through the grieving process, I think, in a different way. Um, so understanding one another and just giving um, support instead of judging how that happens, I think is important. Um, I think therapy could be important depending on what your situation is. And then specifically to type 1 diabetes, I think that it is very important that both partners as much as possible learn everything together. Um, and I know that that's often difficult and we went through that a little bit too where one person is working and they're not at all the endocrinologist meetings and getting all the information. It's important to then go home and share it and say, okay, this is what they said. This is what they said today. Here's, you know, um, I'm going to put it on the fridge of all of our, our insulin factors and all of our equations and everything because there's a lot of kind of math that you do in the beginning to calculate things. Um, and if you're reading podcasts or listening, you know, listening to podcasts or reading books to try to get each other to, as much as possible to do the same things. Um, 
and then talk about it as much as you can, you know, in, in, when you're in a calm state, because um, understanding what your family's and your doctor's boundaries are for what is a panic moment and what isn't, and um, how do we talk about it in front of our child? So that's something that we talk about, you know. Uh, in the beginning, it's hard because people come and ask you how you're doing, whatever, and you might sort of overflow with emotion and talk about how hard everything is. And now I'm much more restrained with that if she's around because I don't want her to constantly receive this message that she's a burden or that this illness is such a burden um, because she will be the one living with it after this, uh, after we're done caring for her. Um, and I want her to have a positive attitude about it if she can. Yeah. Yeah, th this is really interesting because you're talking about basically leveling the playing field with whoever is sharing this journey with you. And if uh, one of the kind of couple does not have the same level of understanding of the theoretical knowledge, then it's very hard probably to to share the the emotional reaction to the new situation. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, very interesting. And um, I think uh, Megan, you gave an abundance of uh, ideas and good advice here. The one population that I want you to also kind of mention and, and speak about is the allies and community members who meet with a child with type one diabetes, who are interacting with another family who has a, a child with type one diabetes. What are your recommendations to those people who wants to be friends to, to that family or to that child? How can they help and support? Yeah, um, so I have these, you know, small number of friends now that I can drop my child off with and so, you know, um, offering to learn sort of the basics. Uh, there is a rescue medication for um, if they're in a diabetic seizure or coma, just that basic learning how to give that so that even if the parent wants to drop the child off to go to the grocery store, whatever, they feel safe enough to know that, okay, in extreme case, this is a safe place for my child. So um, that type of thing, I would say, um, I think, uh, listening and not um, trying to fix everything is really great. Asking how it's going and just being okay with the person saying it's really hard. It's really hard. Uh, there's a lot of fixing, I think, that you know, we all know can happen where people just feel uncomfortable, like, oh, have her blood sugar stabilized? And I was like, they will never stabilize. It's <laughs> not a thing. That's not a thing. Um, uh, um, being very flexible, I would say, you know, uh, understanding that if something happens with the blood sugar, a play date can be canceled or my child may be behaving differently because her blood sugar is low and she might become very cranky or certain things and um, understanding that I might have to rearrange things a lot because of that. It doesn't happen all the time, but that's mostly because I, I force, you know, I might go beyond my boundaries to try to fit in with the normal way things go. And I really, it's very helpful when people just say, oh no, take your time. I, we'll, we'll do it again another time and just, you know, not get upset about that stuff or say, oh, my child's so disappointed you're not coming over. It's like, <laughs> you know, um, I think, um, I think that for, I think that compassion piece is very big. I think that in the beginning, I actually lost a few friends because they really didn't understand 
what my problem was, <laughs> you know, going through that. Um, they didn't, wouldn't ask about it. They, they didn't seem interested. If I did talk about it, they'd be very fix, fix it about it. And um, I realized not long afterwards that, okay, I need to be more careful. I don't have the energy and the time to support friendships where I'm not supported and, and my daughter is not supported. So um, that's a sort of circling around back to the other side, a piece for people to understand that you do or you are allowed to do that. Um, so, yeah. I wanted to add something to your list there because I, I thought you'll mention it and you didn't. And that is that uh, we are in a society that really celebrates a lot around food and with oh, food. Yes. And we do find it necessary to pamper children by pushing sugar and uh, specifically sugar. I'm not talking about food in general, specifically sugar onto them. Yes. And my request, not just on behalf of kids with type 1 diabetes, on behalf of many children with many disabilities that are related to uh, food and uh, food consumption in one way or another, that people in our community try to not focus on food when they uh, host events that are not food related, yes. to uh, eliminate the food from the equation, to substitute food as a treat or as a uh, let's say if you give a goodie bag at the end of a birthday make the goodie bag about a a, a little toy or a little uh, activity rather than a uh, i don't know popsicle i don't know what what they usually uh, give in any certain event but uh, also for halloween please please have another option as a treat for children who cannot uh, consume sugar or cannot consume any other food that you're serving so uh, children not just with type 1 would have an option and they can participate and be uh, equally included uh, in the holiday or in a celebration or activity my two cents yes, thank you for being a good ally <laughs> yeah I, I was sure you'll mention it so i had to you know it's just like almost a whole other category to me but yes absolutely that is one and um one that we struggle with a lot because it's and food is just constantly and unnecessarily a part of uh, kid things. And in the schools, I know they do it a lot. I, like you, am a homeschooler, so I don't deal with that particular torture, but um, it's very big in schools that the teachers give up candy bags or there's birthdays. And um, it is, if you, if you look at the face of the children who cannot participate, I think it's one look and you will not do it again. Yeah. Because they're so heartbroken and they're so used to it that they kind of just fade into the background. And my, I know the look that my daughter gets when it's like, that's happening and I can't do it and I'm not gonna make a scene about it. And some kids might, which is also very hard, but it's very heartbreaking to see and so unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's even in some sports activities for children, you know, they come, they do the little gym activity for a half an hour and then they all get a lollipop at the end and yes. like, ah, why yes. this is the opposite of what we're trying to to yes. teach here, a healthy lifestyle and a healthy living yes. and then they, they end yes. it with sugar. Anyway, uh, that being said, I wanted to ask you if there is anything else you want to share with our audience that uh, is relevant or important that we didn't cover uh, today. Um, you know, I, I would like to just, I had posted this on some of my support groups 
and asked people to share some things that they thought were important and I got a lot of responses and um, because I'm not in the school system this is a piece that's not huge for me but I, I do think it's important for everyone to know. Um, type 1 diabetes is a disability and it is protected by the American Disability Act and everyone should know that they have that right and the way that the schools often handle it is um, illegal mm. and extremely frustrating for everyone and I, I just want to give a voice to those people who are dealing with that. The school year is starting up and my, my support boards are just full of these conversations and um, uh, because it's this sort of disability that people push to the side and don't see in the same way of other things it gets swept under the carpet, but for instance, it will happen a lot um, that, for instance, one woman said, you know, under, in her state, there's um, children with disabilities get a personal service worker, but her daughter does not because she needs insulin and they don't, they will not do that. It's too medically complex. People don't like to give injections, you know, and in fact, you can't even force, you know, a teacher to give the rescue injection um, if the child is seizing. And so there, uh, I would just direct people to, you know, legal services and you guys have podcasts about that. And, um, I really want people to know that they have every right to advocate for their child and that there is legal backing for them. Um, and for those people who are allies and people in the schools and everyone else and doctors to understand what a huge struggle it is for them to, um, get the care that they need for their kids. Yes. Uh, mentioning all the support groups, I want to also mention that uh, people can find you also in our Two Moms No Fluff uh, closed uh, support group. And if uh, yes. people would like to follow up with Megan, knowing my friend here, who's extremely generous with her knowledge and advice, and uh, if, if you want to touch base, if you have follow-up questions after listening to the amazing information Megan shared today with all of us, uh, please, uh, you are welcome to touch base on our confidential support group, Two Moms No Fluff, uh, on Facebook. Uh, if you uh, are not a, a member of that support group, if there is some screening questions, please do answer them as this group is only open to um, family members of children with disabilities. And I want to thank you, Megan, again, for your advocacy and for your support of to other parents and families, not just with type 1 diabetes, but with disabilities in general. It's been an education listening to you. And I appreciate what you do, both as a mother and as a community member. Thank you so very much. And thank you for everyone that joined us today, listening to this episode, obviously very relevant to all of us dealing with disabilities, whether it's type one or anything else. If you have any questions or would like to follow up, whether it's with Megan, Alma or myself, please touch base with us on social media. We appreciate you being here again. Thank you and have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye. For more information, please go to www.twomomsandofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.